Hey leaders, before we get into this episode, I wanted to tell you about a free event that I'm hosting, your personal leadership audit live workshop. I've put the workshop together because if you want to stand out as an exceptional leader, you have to know yourself inside and out. Understanding your strengths and weaknesses is critical. And for that, you need a high degree of self-awareness and a commitment to self-reflection. Now, if you're committed to unlocking your leadership potential, then working through a self-assessment like this is going to help you to quickly identify a path to higher impact. I'll be leading you through a deep dive into the seven imperatives of my No Bullshit Leadership Framework, so that by the end of the session, you'll know exactly what areas you need to develop if you really want to stand out from the crowd. We're only opening up 150 spots, so register now at yourceomentor.com forward slash workshop. That's yourceomentor.com forward slash workshop. Are you selling a little or a lot? Either way, Shopify helps you do your thing. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. In fact, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And now you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Most of the business owners who listen to No Bullshit Leadership want to go large. What's so cool about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, it gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash leadership or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash leadership now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash leadership. Hey leaders, M here. We're finalizing Marty's 2024 speaking calendar and he still has a few opportunities available. Now you've experienced the impact that Marty has on the podcast, but that's only a tiny fraction of the impact that he has when he delivers an in-person keynote presentation. If you'd like to book Marty to speak at your organization's event, go to martingmore.com or send us an email at hello at martingmore.com and we can chat about how to tailor his powerful message to your leaders to achieve real results. All right, now back to the episode. Welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. In a world where knowledge has become a commodity, this podcast is designed to give you something more. Access to the experience of a successful CEO who has already walked the path. So join your host, Martin Moore, who will unlock and bring to life your own leadership experiences and accelerate your journey to leadership excellence. Hey there, and welcome to episode 233 of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. This week's episode, the four-day work week, a Q&A with M. Workforce layoffs have continued in the US as large companies trim the fat in advance of the recession that looks likely to head our way. But the latest data on economic growth and jobs are more positive than most commentators expected. Europe is leading the way, with some better than expected growth figures. And the US added almost 600,000 jobs to the economy in January, which will keep an already tight labour market 
highly strung. So with US unemployment at a 50 plus year low, it could be a seller's market for some time to come. Meanwhile, we continue to field questions every day from listeners who are navigating their own challenges with a backdrop of highly complex and fast moving shifts in the workforce dynamics. In today's Q&A episode, we're going to look at some of the phenomena that you're likely to be wrestling with at the moment, starting with the new push to establish the four-day work week as a standard in many companies. We also take on the difficult topic of shift workers. How do you get them engaged in training and development when they're, quite rightly, focused on critical frontline or customer-facing activities? As you might imagine, we get a lot of questions from our listeners on these issues as they work hard to attract and retain talent. So, to help me answer a few of them today, welcome back to the microphone, Chief Executive of Your CEO Mentor and producer of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast, M. Hello, hello. It is great to be back for this Q&A and we're tackling some questions that I am super interested in. So, yeah, can't wait. Yeah, and given the amount of traffic we've had lately from our listeners on all things uh, job market and work trend related, it's a good opportunity to dive into a few of these issues. Yeah, absolutely. And what I'm hearing from our community is that attracting and retaining top talent when you're not one of the big corporate tech companies who can offer free lunches, unlimited leave and sleep pod rooms is proving to be pretty difficult. So yeah, I'm particularly keen to explore the four-day work week issue. Uh, I, th- I think it's getting a fair bit of momentum when it comes to those workplace perks. Yeah, it is, Em. I'm looking forward to tackling that one. And while we're talking about managing a more flexible workforce, we also cover that great question about shift work. Now, how do you encourage exhausted shift workers to spend their downtime on training and development, not just for the benefit of the business, of course, but also to advance their own careers? Yeah, that's going to be a cracker. Look, Marty, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's get into it. <laughs> Hang on, that's my line. <laughs> All right. It's going to save you. I was going to see if you were going to pick me up All on right, that no, one. Away you go. All right. Look, let's start with a listener question from Brett, who said, I'd love to hear a podcast episode on the topic of the four-day work week. I feel this concept is going to generate significant momentum, particularly as social media and LinkedIn headlines about it ramp up. There are plenty of pros and cons, and I'm interested in a measured discussion on it, like you deliver on your podcast. Marty, that's what you're known for, this measured discussion. What do you reckon? Thanks, Brett. Uh, I appreciate you turning to us for the lucid commentary. If it's measured discussion you want, you've come to the right place. So um, let's just start with a little bit of background. I've been having a look at when this four-day workweek thing started, and the most recent push seems to have come in about the last 12 to 18 months. But I was really surprised at how many countries are trialling various forms of this. So Iceland, of course, as you'd expect, but also Japan, which surprised me. Um, England, Scotland, Spain, even South Africa, which was a huge surprise. Now, some of these are quite limited trials, and there is an organization that's actually pushing this seriously. Um, They're getting behind the four-day work week as a global phenomenon they want to see come true. So if you want to check them out, uh, the website is fourdayweek.com, and it's the number four, fourdayweek.com. Now, I checked out the people behind it. I thought it was going to be a union think tank, but it's not. Andrew Barnes, very credible character, uh, had a great career in banking and finance with Macquarie Bank and uh, Tower in Australia. Also, funnily enough, an HBS alumnus. Uh, So, you know, we used to have a six-day working week. Then we moved to a five-day working week. You've got to ask the question, is this just the natural progression? And if so, like, where does it all end? 
Okay, so what does the four-day work week actually mean? Is it just working the 38.5 hours in four days instead of five? Or is it actually reducing people's hours by 20%? Yeah, good question. It seems to vary a lot. Um, Some organisations are simply going to 32 hours, so four eight-hour days. Others are preserving the time commitment but compressing it into the four days. And everyone's different. And I think it's worth mentioning the types of organisations that are going for this. So apart from the outliers, it seems to be small to medium businesses, not-for-profits and government agencies, which isn't actually that surprising. I don't think it's picked up in the commercial world yet. It may get a foothold in companies other than the tech companies, but that remains to be seen. So a couple of weeks ago, we did an episode called uh, Too Many Cooks. It was episode 230. And I spoke about the concept of job sharing. And of course, when it came to job sharing, government organisations embraced it and took it up wholesale and really, really got stuck into it. It was a great thing for them in terms of equity and uh, ability to give people more flexibility. And that goes back a while. But interestingly, private enterprise didn't pick it up. And I think that's the sure sign of whether or not something is effective commercially. Uh, You know, you can do all the studies you like and get all the people saying this is a great thing and we're not losing productivity. But at the end of the day, It'll be interesting to see who picks it up. And if private enterprise doesn't, well, there's your answer. (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting. So I suppose let's let's run through the pros. What are the benefits of this four-day work week? Well, I think there are a bunch of pros. Um, Let's give them their due. So I think for more senior people, it doesn't make a hell of a lot of difference because when you're in a really senior role, you're always on. And you might not Mm. physically be in the office, but you're always on. And so even though, as I say, when I was a senior executive and a CEO, I only worked probably on average 55 hours a week, but I was constantly available and constantly ready to jump into action if anything happened. So that doesn't change a lot. Yeah. Um, People driving the organization are in exactly the same space. The question is, will leaders push to manage more on outputs other than inputs? Because if they do that, then that's an entirely good thing. If we say we're working less hours, we need to be more focused and more concentrated on doing the right things and creating the same amount of value, hey, that's awesome. It pushes you harder to think about time management. Mm. Um, There are probably also benefits in terms of attraction and retention. So you will be attracting more employees because you offer a four-day work week. Are you attracting the employees you want? Or are you attracting employees who love their work-life balance and really aren't that focused on driving achievement orientation. And I guess, uh, what else? Well, we're going to end up with happier employees, right? And we all know happy employees are what, Em? <laughs> <laughs> no, happy, what is, what's that episode called? Happy Number workers, eight? happy workers aren't productive workers. That's, That's a myth buster. It's absolutely not true. Yeah. So as we said, you know, they may, they may be happier, but not necessarily more productive, right? Absolutely. And, and look, this is, this is where the productivity ends. I mean, you know, are you able to minimize a loss of productivity and in return, get a whole lot of loyalty and retention? And if so, does that actually work for you? Does, does the scale balance out at the end of the day? I don't know. The ones that hunger for work-life balance, you know, you'll be able to find those anywhere. And I don't know that retention of those people is the, the name of the game. I think it would be a lot easier in a smaller business as well, you know, when, sure. you, when you know the motivations of each individual and you can be really onto that. But in a larger organization, I can see it being mm, 
taken advantage of, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, 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 you know, like anything in, in those large organisations, blanket policies rarely work, uh, even though that's what you sort of have to do. You're sort of forced into that blanket policy situation and you're not necessarily getting what you want. Yeah, fair enough. So, look, I could be wrong, but it seems like the cons would far outweigh these pros. Yeah, well, look, I think so. And there's a range of reasons behind it. I'm not just being an old-fashioned stickler for this stuff. Most leaders, I don't think, from my observation, are strong enough to bridge that productivity gap. So they're still managing by inputs and not by outputs. Um, Will they genuinely change the way they lead just because we're doing a four-day work week? Or will they once again lower expectations in terms of what's going to be produced? And I think it's much more likely that the latter is going to happen. Uh, We're already seeing impacts from hybrid work, uh, you know, impacts on innovation, on culture, on collaboration. So the four-day work week is just going to accelerate this decline, I think. And if you're going to take an extra day off, what are you going to lose? An in-office day or an at-home day? Because, you know, one or the other is going to happen. Mm. So do you end up having people even less time in the office? Now, As we might expect, I think governments are going to champion this, whether they're local, state or federal governments at different levels in different countries, and they'll probably do okay with it. Um, I'm sort of a little reluctant to say this, but I think the existing inefficiency and the lack of performance drive is probably going to make this all work out. Um, A lot of things that happen in government are simply a victimless crime because no one sees them. They're just absorbed by the amount of government spending that goes on when our taxes get poured into it. So there are the practicalities of covering customer service as well. Like, you know, you're spreading people too thin and some roles can't be divided that way. Mm. So you'll need more staff. And then, of course, the people who can't work in a four-day week because they're in a customer-facing role, well, they're going to feel resentful towards those that can. Yeah. Um, you've got to cover peak periods. You've got to cover overflow capacity. And for competitive businesses, there's a sort of prisoner's dilemma in this because when you think about it, are you going to be the first one in your industry or in your market to move to a four-day work week with the spectre of being outcompeted by those that can be more productive by having all their staff working a five-day week? Mm. Don't know. Mm. Don't know. Yeah, and we've seen huge productivity gains in the last few decades, mainly through improvements in technology. Do you think this will factor in at all? Oh, that's an excellent point. Um, yeah, look, technology will definitely fill some of that hole and... Um, There are all these predictions about humans being uh, less required in in the future that's just upon us now. Uh, So many more jobs are going to be taken by robots and AI, and that's fine. But this has always been the way, right? So as we've um, relied less on human effort, the technology has stepped in to fill it. I mean, that goes all the way back to the invention of the printing press uh, in the 15th century. You know, and since then, the productivity that's been taken on by machines as opposed to manual labour has always been a factor. But labour's normally one of the biggest costs of any business. So, you know, it's all relative at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. So, Marty, four-day work week, yay or nay? Uh, I'm a, I'm a sceptical nay. Um, <laughs> I, I, just, I just don't think it's going to return. I think it's just more of that thin edge of the wedge that's causing the productivity decline personally. Love it. All right, Brett, hopefully that was the measured look at the four-day work week that you were looking for. For question two, we've had this question in a few different forms from a number of listeners, but most recently Debbie in sunny San Diego asked this question. I think it's a great one. Shift work for the crew on board cruise ships means that many crew are only available for training after work when they're exhausted or want their personal downtime. How can you handle this? 
Oh, okay. Well, this is a great question. Um, shift work can be pretty tricky, particularly for trying to run a 24-7 operation, as many industries do. Uh, but it's been around for a really long time, right? And and I got my fill of this in uh, CS Energy, amongst other places, where we had a portion of our workforce who worked shifts. And for them, it was an absolute bonanza. So they had these really cushy union-driven agreements, you know, five days on, four days off. Um, every week brings an extended holiday. The average hours worked per week was probably about 34 for these shift workers, and they were paid huge penalty rates and allowances. So they could make huge money working not a lot. And uh, these were legacy arrangements. I'm, I'm sure that they're not necessarily going to be the same in you know all these businesses. But the people who are under these cushy arrangements weren't necessarily motivated or happy because other things drive this. Mm. So when we talk about you know going back to four-day work weeks or people getting favorable shift allowances and shift positioning, doesn't necessarily make them happy. Uh, industries like tourism, hospitality, and entertainment are very different from that experience I just spoke about because they're customer-facing. So to build in time for anything else is tricky, right? Uh, do you do it at the start of shift or the end of shift? How much do you value the training that's being given to people? And you've got compliance versus core skills. There's, there's a bunch of stuff that they need to know that are regulations and laws that they have to be tra- trained in. And there's other stuff that's just core skill stuff. So what is it reasonable to ask people to do in their own time? Um, You'll know him, of course, when we designed Leadership Beyond the Theory, we did it in a way that enabled flexible consumption of most of the content. Mm. So being delivered in an online platform, people get the opportunity to consume that information the best way they can, whether they do it first thing in the morning each day for half an hour, whether they binge three hours, four hours on a weekend. It, It was really up to the person about their individual style and their own lifestyle and their own personal commitments to fit that in. And then we came together, as we do, around a group mentoring session or a webinar to put everything into context. So this hybrid way of learning, I think, is a really, really effective way, and it gives a lot of flexibility, but a lot of people aren't motivated to do that in their time off. Yeah, that's so true. And I think that multimodal learning and being able to do it, you know, read it or watch it or listen to it. Uh, you know, people have more opportunities to actually get through the learning in the way that suits them. So, you know, obviously that's something to think about. Are you going to make people sit down and watch a lecture for five hours after they've done a huge shift? Well, (laughs) yeah, let's hope not. (laughs) Yeah, no one's going to retain that. So, yeah. Okay. So why is it so hard to do this, Marty? Like, isn't it just a matter of allocating the time and setting the expectation? Theoretically, yes, but in practical terms, it can be quite a bit more difficult. So, for example, total shift length can be an issue when you think about managing fatigue for your workers. And, uh, you know, as Debbie said, the crew are exhausted after a shift. You don't want them to be doing things when they're not in their right mind. Um, Then there are other things you have to fit in apart from training. So you've got group meetings, you know, you've got shift handovers um, where you communicate important messages. There are you know, one-on-one meetings and performance discussions, which should be taking place. Uh, I mean, I find that with people doing this frontline work, you can probably add 30% of non-productive time to any employee based on the additional things they have to do that's not their main job description. And then does the business model support this? So I don't know about the business model in the cruise industry, but once again, if you make your staff less productive by making them do all sorts of other things other than delivering the services, 
How does that compare cost-wise with what your competitors are doing? Yeah, that's a really good point. So I guess this would be relatively easy if you could just start with a blank sheet of paper. For sure. But most of these industries, they're established and they have a business model built around the cost profile. Yeah, they absolutely do. So, you know, this is the prisoner's dilemma that we look at in, um, you know, four-day work week as well. You know, what do you do when your competitors aren't doing it? There's a sort of interesting story about this from years ago for a very, very good mate of mine who was uh, a, Mac- a McKinsey consultant at the time. And working for an airline, I won't tell you which one, but they were really struggling to meet their financial projections for their in-terminal concessions, you know, like food and drink on the ground. And what he found with his McKinsey team was that they were feeding these people too well in the air. And so they weren't going to eat when they were on the ground and they weren't going to drink when they were on the ground. So what they recommended was that the airline go to lunch boxes instead of full service meals. And the airline that he was working for said, there's absolutely no way. If we do that, we'll be out of business. No one will fly with us. Well, eventually they convinced this airline to do it. The airline went to lunchboxes and within two months, all the other airlines followed them. <laughs> so there is, a way to break, there is a way to break the paradigm, but it's really tough. You've got to be very, very confident and very, very bold to make that sort of a move. And in a lot of tourism and hospitality businesses, you have that high turnover and that high proportion of unskilled and transient labour. Should you and can you make allowances for these challenges? Yeah, you should. And you really need to think about this in terms of everything you do. So the local conditions will always play a factor. Um, For example, you know, we had to think about uh, in some of the industrial businesses I worked in, the literacy rates of certain employees, because we were producing processes and procedures that were quite important that had to be followed on the front line. Yet, a, a, a relatively high percentage of the frontline workers didn't have high literacy and couldn't read and understand and comprehend the complex processes that they were supposed to follow. So making sure that everything's fit for purpose, making sure that you uh, gear it towards the audience that has to consume it and making it effective, that's, that's the most important thing. So if you have issues like high turnover, then it's much more important that you can induct those people well. And induction and probation are critical because if people can't actually get it during induction, you don't want them hanging around in your business and, and becoming poor performers. So, um, so yeah, so those are the things you've got to think about, and they are really dependent on your industry, uh, your location, and who you're competing against. Okay, so I don't even know if we answered Debbie's question, but we did just throw a lot of things out there to say, hey, Debbie, here is some food for thought. I think we agree that, Deb- <laughs> that Debbie's in a difficult position. It's hard, Debbie. <laughs> uh, that's why it's such a good question, right? This is a tricky thing. Look, what I would do is that I would start by allocating some time up front of a shift. I'd get people to come in half an hour early to do whatever. If you can extend the shift time, fantastic, but there's a cost involved in that. Um, And particularly when you're running multiple shifts and and switching them over, you've got to make sure that it all hangs together in terms of the roster. So it's not easy, but I'd be trying to fit half an hour into each person's shift up front so that you can do anything you need to do, whether it be training, getting important messages across, one-on-one meetings, anything that has to happen. Love that. Super practical. And as I said earlier, lots of food for thought on both those questions. We've tackled two pretty big topics. So hopefully that was useful. And a big thank you to Brett and Debbie for sending in such great questions. As always, if you'd like us to cover something specific on the podcast, just shoot us an email at hello at yourceomentor.com and we'll add your question to the Q&A list or obviously on any of our social channels. Marty, why don't you take us out? Uh, Thanks, and will do. So that brings us to the end of episode 233. 
Thanks so much for joining us. And remember, at Your CEO Mentor, our purpose is to improve the quality of leaders globally. So please share this episode now with your network of leaders. I'm really looking forward to next week's episode, which is a particularly special one. We're presenting one of our very rare interviews. And this one's with Amy Porterfield, the icon of digital marketing, who talks about the journey of going from employee to entrepreneur. And interestingly, if it wasn't for Amy, there would be no No Bullshit Leadership podcast. So until then, I know you'll take every opportunity you can to be a no bullshit leader.